Good morning. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. Is it good to have those pastoral prayers prepare our hearts? I'm thankful for the brothers that do so well in those. Back in 2002, my wife Kelly and I were on our honeymoon. It seems like it was yesterday. Anybody else remember 2002? Yeah. You realize that was almost 20 years ago, right? And back in 2002, we were on the beautiful island of Aruba, uh, and as gifts for our wedding, we received a couple of adventures to go and do some fun things. We went horseback riding. Some of you have heard that story. I had a horse named 007 who looked like a pony, and by the end was very sad that he had me as a rider. One of the other adventures that we went on was called Snuba. Yes, I said Snuba. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's a mixture of snorkeling and scuba, thus the name Snuba. It allows you to go about 20 to 30 feet down under the water for extended periods of time without having to go through the intense training or certification of scuba. And you have a large air tank that sits on a raft at the surface, and you have uh, four hoses that go down to regulators in the water. And so two pairs of people are able to snorkel at a limited distance or snuba at a limited distance. And for someone who's never, ever uh, done scuba but only ever snorkeled, this is a really cool thing, right? Uh, It's a pretty unbelievable experience. The only problem is that there is not a whole lot of forethought or calculation that goes into it. And so variables like age, size, lung capacity, stress, depth, volume of air, all the things that you are trained to think about in scuba diving, um, well, you just have those absent in snuba. And so when you have four people who are inexperienced at snuba, a bit stressed in choppy Atlantic waters, and then you add the fact that one of them This guy is the size of Goliath and has lungs with a pretty large capacity. You might just run into a problem of air running out faster than with four normal-sized people. And that, my friends, is exactly what happened. Down at about 30 feet in choppy Atlantic waters, Kelly, myself, and two other people were breathing right along, labored breathing, but breathing along, and then all of a sudden, nothing. Now, I can tell you that there are few sensations in life that are more alarming than trying to breathe on a regulator that has no air, especially if you are untrained in how to survive underwater. Luckily, because we were within one atmosphere of pressure and we were breathing from air on the surface, we didn't need a safety stop, and so we just popped right up to the surface. You guys know those National Geographic videos that you've seen where the giant humpback whale comes up out of the water straight up and then slams down on its side? Well, that was pretty much me popped up like a cork, gasped for as much air as I could, and then fell right back down in the water. Now, Kelly was much more graceful, but that air, that much-needed air, the sweet oxygen, it never tasted so good. It never felt so life-giving as in that moment. Now, there's much more to this story that I will have to tell you another time, but this story captures the way I believe many of us will feel as we read today's text in Deuteronomy 30. Throughout Deuteronomy, we've heard the much-needed description of the character and faithfulness of God. We've been trained and exhorted in what is the holiness of God, God's law of justice, His love, His reconciliation, and His righteousness. But as I read through Deuteronomy, I find that I feel today, and maybe you feel much like this as well, that I feel the same way I felt on that snuba trip. 
Just like that oxygen that I was breathing, I can see in Deuteronomy the life-giving water of the word. I know that heeding the themes of Deuteronomy that are continued into the new covenant will bring life, and I will find that life as I endure in them. But at the same time, I feel overwhelmed in Deuteronomy, and I feel submerged in the worldliness and the brokenness that surrounds me and is within me. And to be very honest with you, as I personally come to the end of Deuteronomy, I can sense that I'm in need of some error. I'm in need of some hope because I want the discipline of God and his people. How many of you want the discipline of God and his people? Okay, like five of us. Okay, good. How many of you want the exhortation of God's word? Yeah. We want his holiness. We want his righteousness. And I need these things. You need these things like we need the air that we breathe. But like David in our psalm this morning, sometimes I feel like evils have encompassed me and I cannot see. When I look at the mountain of sanctification and transformation that is ahead of me in my life, it becomes daunting and suffocating. When I look at the holiness of God in comparison to my weakness and my puniness, I feel very small, no longer like that big humpback whale coming out of the water, but a tiny little speck in God's plan. And I so need to hear the deliverance and steadfast love of the Lord. I need to know that he sees my failures and my weaknesses. I need the encouragement that the brokenness that surrounds me and is within me will not prevail. Does that resonate with any of you this morning? Do you need a reminder of how, God good, how good God is today? Well, I believe our text this morning will give us that good news that we need. Today we will be looking at the hope given by God's forgiveness clause. The hope given by God's forgiveness clause. I had this weird thought as we planted the church that when we got to a certain size and had a certain number of leaders and a certain number of programs, that things would even out and, and that we would be kind of operational and people would just go forward and, and, you know, they'd kind of grow in sanctification. But as the church grows, walking through the pain grows because now we have more people that are going through more pain and more brokenness and more heartache, not because of necessarily sin they've done, but because you guys go through life. And it's suffocating sometimes. And so I believe that today will give us a much-needed breath of fresh air. We've finished the stipulations of the law. We've come through the section on blessings and cursings for obedience or disobedience, respectively. And we've uh, even exited that section with the knowledge that most likely the human hearts of the Israelites will indeed choose disobedience. And so we begin to choke for air, realizing our human sin and depravity is overwhelming, wondering if there is any hope. And we will find that the Lord delivers that hope as we need so badly. Let's read there in our reading for today, Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What we'll first see this morning is this contextual fact. You can write this down. Only God could provide a suzerain treaty that contains a forgiveness clause. Only God could provide a suzerain treaty that contains a forgiveness clause. Now, for those of you who are new or visiting or those of you that just forgot, remember that Deuteronomy is written largely in a form that would have made an immense amount of sense to the people of the day. The people of the day would have understood this idea of a suzerain treaty very, very well. A suzerain is, remember, a fancy word for a sovereign conquering king. And the treaty would be between the king and the people that were recently conquered so as to provide expectations for a mutually agreeable covenant relationship. The king would benevolently provide and protect and the people would live in obedience to the commands of the king. Very awkward for us as 2019 Americans. We know that this was a well-known format of communication in the day because multiple similar earthly suzerain treaties have been uncovered and they've been unearthed and found from the time period of Deuteronomy in the ancient Near East. And so just like if God were speaking today, I hate to even say this, I might get struck down. So Ryan, you're teaching if I get struck. He might use Twitter, <laughs> right? Or he may use Facebook, I don't know. But the reality is, is he used suzerain treaties in those days, in this day, to help people understand who he was and who they were to be. The primary difference between those earthly covenants and this heavenly one is that those treaties were usually between an earthly king and his earthly vassals, and the gods are only brought in to be the judge, jury, and executioners of the curses if the people rebelled. This treaty, however, is between a personal loving deity, a loving God, the one true God, the creator God, and his people who he has redeemed to be his own miraculous work and his own miraculous uh, spokespeople among the nations. But there's also a second difference between those earthly suzerain treaties and this one. To date in archaeology, none of the earthly treaties that have been uncovered have a clause of forgiveness. They don't have any chance of forgiveness should the vassals disobey or break the covenant. But this one does. Now, there are many reasons why that might be, but my guess is that the primary reason is possibly one of two. First, if the vassals rebel and disobey in an earthly covenant, part of the curse is destruction and death. And in an earthly sense, you can't come back from that, right? You're squelched. Secondly, in an earthly uh, covenant, if they disobey and rebel in uprising, it might mean an end to the kingdom of the suzerain. So no forgiveness is possible because the suzerain is out of power. The amazing gospel contained within the fact that this forgiveness clause even exists in Deuteronomy is that only God could overcome those two factors. First, he conquers death on behalf of his people. He knows that ultimately there will still be a remnant of resurrected people that are his. He knows this. And secondly, because he is God, his kingdom will never be overcome, even in the midst of the most cosmic uprising that has ever been waged. God knows that his kingdom will not be overcome. So in the words of Luke 18.27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It would be impossible, utterly impossible, 
for an earthly king to put in a forgiveness clause. There would be no point. But for a heavenly king to do so shows his power and his strength. When the weight of sin that so easily ensnares us wraps tight around our proverbial necks so that we feel as though we can't breathe, the gospel brings us the breath of life that we can indeed be forgiven of our sin. When we look at the news and we think, there's no way that this can keep on going, the world is going to crumble, we are going to destroy ourselves, the gospel speaks of the fact that God's kingdom will never be overcome. The Bible is clear that God is the ultimate judge of all that humanity has done. Twice in the New Testament, he is called the judge of the living and the dead. Here's one uh, where we are told that we will all have to face him as judge. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The bad news that humanity faces is that without Christ, each and every person will be judged by the fact that we have chosen to place ourselves in the position of God and judge. We have decided what is right and good and true, and we persist in that. Even sometimes, sometimes as believers, we persist in stiffening our necks and making sure that we are the authority on what is good and right and true. In doing so, we have removed the Creator God from His rightful place as Creator, King, and Judge. But the good news of the gospel is that God so loved his creation and so loved each person, every one of you in this room and the world over. He loved us because we were made in his image. And he initiated a plan to send his son who voluntarily took on your sin and mine. He took it on himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sin to restore us to the fullness of that image. In so doing, he was substituting himself in my place and in yours to receive the wrath of God and separation from God that you and I deserve for our rebellion. And to wrap your mind around it, it wasn't just the wrath of the Father, it was the wrath of the Son, the wrath of the triune God. In Revelation, it says that people will cry out for, for uh, the chance to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. That's speaking of the Son. The wrath of God against disobedience. We were saved from it because of what Jesus did. And Jesus took that on the cross, and that is why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross of Calvary, Jesus was both the perfectly obedient son and at the same time took your place and mine as the sons and daughters of disobedience, that we might instead be joined back together with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. This happened in the will of the fullness of the triune God so that you and I would be reconciled to God and to one another. And we can now, in the midst of that restored covenant relationship, move forward in growth of sanctification towards holiness, towards showing the fullness of his image, growing in relationship with God and with his people until the day that we step into our future glory with Christ. And we can be assured because that new covenant relationship that Christ has restored, that Christ has purchased, the one that the Holy Spirit has sealed us within, we can be assured that we will stand in peace before the judge at the end of days because of the work of Christ. And this is the gospel. Amen? Amen? This is what we gather to proclaim and preach every Sunday. This is the breath of air that we need to remind ourselves of daily, moment by moment, as the sin that surrounds us or wells up within us threatens to suffocate us. It is this truth that infuses hope into God's people, the truth that we can be forgiven if repentance is present. 
That is the truth of chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, and that is the truth of the gospel found in every word of the New Testament. And this truth is what infuses hope into God's people. Amen? Amen. The forgiveness clause infuses hope into God's people. It infused hope to the Israelites, and it imparts hope to us today. The forgiveness clause infuses hope into God's people. I don't know why I'm stuck on the idea of scuba today. And uh, that's the problem with being committed to a church over the long hauls that you get to hear the pastor's stories over and over. But on another scuba trip, we were down about 200 feet. We were with a technical diver, and I started to get what is called narked, which is to say that the nitrogen built up in my system was making me feel confused. I freaked out thinking that I only had one tank and that the tank was getting low and I needed to make multiple safety stops at depth. I needed a lot more air. So I turned around to the technical diver that was leading us and I started to make the sign that I had half a tank, which is this. But I was doing it so fast that it looked like this, which is I'm out of air. I was going like this. So I was confused and I was making this weird sign that seemed like I was saying, I'm out of air. So he swam over quickly, grabbed my gauge and looked at it, looked at me funny and said, calm down, and then pointed to the second tank that was at my side to remind me that I was still on my first tank and I had a second tank. In my confused and clouded state, I knew that life was going to get bleak as my primary tank ran dry. Anybody have a primary tank running dry today? <laughs> yeah, I looked at my gauge this morning. It was at the red, right? <laughs> But knowing that I had a second tank ahead gave me hope that I could endure and that I would ultimately, ultimately make it to the surface, that I was going to make it to life. As we look back at our text today, we see that the text directly before us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it speaks to this. Look at what uh, we read this last week. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. As I said last week, there are two meanings of this verse that have been brought up by theologians and commentary, uh, commentators. We discussed one meaning last week, that the community was responsible for assisting each individual fight against the root of sin in their own lives, the whole uh, sec section of text preceding it. But as we discussed last week, there's another possibility, that this verse is actually linked with this section before us today, and that God was revealing to Israel part of the secret of God's future plan of hope that God would bring about reconciliation. He'd bring about reconciliation for his people that contained within it forgiveness for the repentant. And this was to give them hope to endure. Maybe not just this generation, but all future generations. So let's break down all the promises of God from this section. Let's break apart this text and see what he's promising. First, if you want to write this down, it says that God is faithful to seek his people out. God is faithful to seek his people out. It says he will even go to the, the corners of heaven to find his people. The sinful response of Israel would result in an exile that would break them apart and send them into the farthest parts of the Gentile world. Guys, we know the Bible is true because we still see this today. The fact that the second largest amount of Jewish people live in New York City shows that the Bible is true, right? In 2019, and so the reality is, is that God said, wherever you go, even to the depths of New York City, I will find you. I actually kind of like New York. It's a, it's a pretty cool place. 
But the reality is, is he would find them. He would go after them. God would not lose track of those who were his, not in this generation or in any future generation. God found me in an attic in the midst of Bergen, Norway, right after 9-11 as I cried out to him. I mean, Bergen, Norway, have you ever heard of that place? God went to the corners of the world to find people. He goes to the middle of Ouagadougou. It was a joke when I was a kid that Timbuktu was the end of the earth, right? You know how close Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso is to Timbuktu? It's actually really close. (laughs) So I joked when I went to Ouagadougou the first time, I've been to the ends of the earth and God has found people there. When God saw the rebellion of the people at the Tower of Babel and he lovingly dispersed them so that he would mitigate the harm that they would do to themselves, he was able to find and pull out a man through whose family he could initiate the plan of redemption, the man named Abraham. God specializes in seeking out those who are his and drawing them to himself. He does so through the Spirit working in the midst of his word and the Spirit dwelling in the church as we are sent to draw hearts to him. Well, secondly, not only does he draw people to him, it says that he will have mercy on his people. Look at verse 3 there. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you. I think often we view God from a place of how he can't wait to pour out his wrath on us. But dear church, if that were true, this book would be three chapters and it would end with the human race being destroyed and the words, the end. Everything about that? If God wanted to destroy you, this would be literally one and a half pages thick. And yet, the story of God is that it's this thick because God's patience is this amazingly wide. That doesn't mean we should wait in the midst of sin and keep messing around with it, but it does mean that God's patience is amazing. James 2.13 says this. It says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, Mercy triumphs over judgment. We are really good at this church, and I I like this fact that we talk about Jesus as judge at the end of days. We need that because we need to repent. We need to walk in holiness, and that message is not preached very often anymore. But the reality is, is that mercy triumphs over judgment, and God's desire is to grant mercy. Take that message to the world around you, brothers and sisters. God doesn't want to destroy you. He's not sitting there waiting to blow you up. He wants to bring mercy to you. His desire is always mercy for you and I. God has shown himself faithful to this promise because he's never forsaken his people. And the book of Romans says that in, uh, that in the midst of the church, he is still proving faithful to his word to the Jews. Why don't you guys turn with me? We're going to read a pretty large section of text, but I think it's really important to read. Go to Romans and take a look at Romans 11. And I want you to hear specifically how God is proving true to his statement, even in Deuteronomy 30, to the Jews of today. You see, I have a theological belief that there is no, no brokenness apart from this group of Israelites in the church. They're, they're one and the same. The Jews are in the church. And some eschatology, some end times, it tries to break them apart and go through all this rigmarole and upside down figuring out how the two are going to become one again. The reality is, is if you're Jew or Gentile, you're in the church. That's what Ephesians tells us, right? 
So we don't need to do any gymnastics and end times debate about Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians tells us they're one. And so 11.1 says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because this is the idea. Well, the church is there. Does he not stay true to his promises to the Jews anymore? Well, Paul answers this very quickly. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, just a kind of a funny thing. I know a few of you have some uh, Jewish background in you. Uh, my great-grandfather was 100% Jewish. God is proving true to the Jews by the fact that I am standing here today before you a converted Christian. Okay? It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Elijah cried out, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. He must have been an Enneagram 4, this idea of angst and isolation, right? I'm alone. Sorry if you're a four out there. Uh, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. In other words, there were individuals within Israel saved, part of the remnant of people that walked in holiness, and the majority of the people walked away. He quotes then David and says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, God used the exile of the Jews to bring about the goodness of the gospel to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the whole world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, that's us Gentiles, among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. In other words, don't say the Jews are cast aside. Uh, some of our Protestant fathers who we love and look to and respect, like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they were arrogant towards the branches. It cracks me up that they taught and read Romans so much, and yet were, in some cases, anti-Semitic. It's hilarious. It's hilarious, not a funny ha-ha, but a sad ha-ha. <laughs> Just to make that clear. Yeah, that wasn't in my notes. Verse 20. <laughs> that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. There's the call to repentance and continual walk in holiness. Note that then that the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. 
for God has the power to graft them in again. Now, I know that was a big section of Scripture, and some of you may be reeling, trying to take in all of that theology there, but this entire statement of Paul to the church at Rome is a statement of the proof that God, by staying true to his promise in Deuteronomy 30, has not only created a way for all mankind, Jew or Gentile, to find salvation, but he has kept a way for Jews to not be forsaken either. He has proven true to his promises. He went to the farthest ends of the earth to grasp the Gentiles and the Jews, and he has shown mercy to everyone. And he doesn't pull back that promise of mercy. Well, third, our text in Deuteronomy says that he will bring them back into the land that was prepared for them. Now, this is an interesting promise because the question arises, when did that happen or will that happen? And this is where we need to remember how prophets, such as Moses and Ezekiel, They were given vision to God's future plans. I've used this graphic before. I know it's kind of funny looking, but uh, this is the best graphic design you're going to get from me. Um, This is what they saw. They saw the mountaintops of prophecy. And so when they saw certain events like the Babylonian invasion, the first and second coming of Christ, they were seeing the peaks, but they missed seeing the time in between. They missed seeing those valleys. Moses saw that the people would return, but when was that? Was that when they returned from the Babylonian exile to the land of Israel, as written in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Was it when in 1948 Israel regained its statehood and started to draw Jews from all over the world? Many people alive at that time thought so and started to wrap Scripture and the belief of end times around that idea, possibly errantly, we don't know. Whether it was one of these or both of these or possibly an even greater fulfillment of the future, God has proven true multiple times to his promise. Or could it be that God will prove true to the promise to give his people a land of shalom when he restores all of heaven and earth and removes all that are enemies to his kingdom? This is what Revelation 21 says. Eventually, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, in our comfort-driven society, we as Christians in America look at that second little part there at the end, and we go, cool, no more tears, no more pain. But guys, Jews would read this and say, finally, the covenant will be ultimately fulfilled. Finally, Eden will be restored. Finally, we will be one with our God. Regardless, God has proven true and will be true to his promise to bring them back in the land. Fourth in our section today, Moses tells the people, if you look at it again, you can go back there with me. If you look at Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6, he tells people that he will circumcise their hearts so that they will love God and obey him. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Ezekiel came during the exile, during the curse being enacted on the people and reminded them of this promise. This is from Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So this is fast forwarded into the future when the curses are coming upon them and they're exiled. 
He says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, sound familiar? Gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's the idea of circumcision of the heart. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, we look at the hyperbolic or exaggerated statements of the Old Testament prophets, and we wonder when that will happen. We cry out, God, when are you going to circumcise our hearts? When are you going to send the fullness of the Spirit to do that work? But look at what Peter says in his first preaching on the day of Pentecost. Would you turn with me to Acts? No, I'm turning you all over the place today, but this is the point, is that the Word of God proves the faithfulness of God to his promises. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Peter's standing there on the day of Pentecost. He's just uh, been speaking in the tongues of men, the languages of men, speaking in languages he does not know and the apostles do not know to preach the gospel to other people of other languages. In verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, meaning the other disciples, are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now question, was he talking about the end days of 1948 or 2019? No, he was talking about that day, that that initiated the end of time. Well, Hans, that was 2,000 years ago, right? 1,000 years or is a day for God. We're in the end days. It says, verse 18, even on male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Well, Hans, that hasn't happened. We're still waiting for that. Guys, this was apocalyptic language that was known in the day. It wasn't literal, okay? It was saying God will come, there will be destruction, and he will raise victorious. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, great, we might be thinking in 2019. When is this going to happen? Well, keep reading with me. In verse 22, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's describing a similar text here. He just got done talking about Joel and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of God's people so that they might be forgiven, cleansed, and drawn towards obedience. And so we all think, yeah, that'll be great. When will that happen? Well, then he goes into the gospel here. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he says to all the Jews standing before him, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Notice this. He has, is that past tense, current tense, or future tense? past. He has. He's already done this. Okay, It happened this morning, Peter's saying, day of Pentecost. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Wait a minute, what? What did he just say there? He said the promise of the Holy Spirit that would circumcise our hearts, that would do the work of causing us to obey in righteousness, it's already been poured out. You don't have to wait for it any further. It happened that day on the day of Pentecost. See what he says? He's saying Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit that was promised by Joel, the Holy Spirit that's promised by Ezekiel, the Holy Spirit that's promised by Jeremiah. In Peter's eyes, the promised Spirit of God that is holy, that was promised by the prophets, was poured out on the day of Pentecost, initiating the church age in which you and I live. Brothers and sisters, God has given us that Spirit. We don't have to wait for forgiveness. That was accomplished on the cross. We don't have to wait for cleansing. We were cleansed by the sacrificial blood of our king. We don't even have to wait for obedience. It's available for the taking by the ongoing love and compassionate conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God that we freely take in. Amen? Amen. God has proven true to his promises. Well, Hans, what if I don't obey? Well, first, examine yourself to see if you're converted. If you are a Christian, walk in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Delve into the word. Be enveloped by the word. And then as sin comes to light, bring it before your brothers and sisters so that it might be killed. So that you can walk in more and more holiness every day. For we have a treasure in these earthen vessels that is growing day by day as our earthly man is perishing away. And one day, this body that keeps me in sin will die and will resurrect a new body, but the treasure within will be there as it is today, loving Jesus and wanting obedience. Well, lastly, Deuteronomy 30 promises victory over the enemies of Israel. This is where these mountain peaks come in handy. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we have been shown that our ultimate enemies of death, sin, and the grave have no hold on those who are in Christ. But again, we await the fullness of this where we can declare that we are truly victorious over the kingdom of darkness and once and for all cry out that death is defeated. We await this day. We call for it every time we pray, every time we weep over the brokenness of this world. We know it's coming in fullness, but God has still been faithful in his promises and he has given it to us today. Speaking of the ultimate day of resurrection for all those that are in Christ, the Apostle Paul reiterates this in his letter to the suffering servants at Corinth when he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. He's not referring to the rapture here. He's referring to resurrection. At the resurrection, we will be changed. At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because he's given us that victory, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding or overflowing in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He helps us to see. Now, I've given you a ton of scripture here, and you can go back and read it this week to see these breadcrumbs. I have scratched the surface of the breadcrumbs of hope that are scattered throughout the truth of mankind's sin. This Bible is two things. It's the truth of mankind's sin against a holy, righteous God, and scattered throughout are these large Hans-sized breadcrumbs, okay? (laughs) Not mouse-sized breadcrumbs, Hans-sized breadcrumbs, Goliath-sized breadcrumbs, scattered throughout the truth of our sin that infuses us with hope in the ultimate restoration of all things. And here in Deuteronomy 30, the forgiveness clause infuses us with that hope, infuses us with hope as we stand amongst his people, reminding one another that we can be hopeful in Christ. And so as God's people, we take this and apply it, even as Paul did here in 1 Corinthians 15. And so the question for us that's before us right now is what is the application of our text today? Turn there back with me to see in chapter 30 that this hope should cleanse us and define us as God's covenant people. This hope should cleanse us and define us as God's covenant people. This section of text is beautiful because it contains a very practical application within it. And first, Moses says that we need to meditate on the truth of what's in this text. Look at verse 1 there. It says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind. You call them to mind. When you call to mind the blessings and cursing. When you are exiled among a people that do not follow the same God and do not have the same king, he says, They do not have the same law. You are to call to mind the covenant relationship and all that it contains. Let me say that again. When you are exiled, he says to his people, among a people that do not follow the same God and do not have the same king or law. Do you think that applies to us today? We are no longer a Judeo-Christian country, guys. That went out the window a lot longer ago than we want to admit. We live in exile. We are a people that follow a foreign king. Hans, that's not very patriotic. No, it's just truth. And so God is speaking to us the same way he was speaking to them. When you are exiled, call it to mind. That's one of the reasons we get together every Sunday. Call to mind God's truth so that we will be convicted and we will remember whose we really are, who we pledge allegiance to. This morning and every Sunday that we gather, we recall the words of God, the promises of God, so that we can be convicted in truth about the state of our hearts and the contra-conditional love of God that in spite of our innate sin, God calls us to himself. 
We come together as a chosen and called people in the midst of our exile among a fallen and dark kingdom so that we can remember who we really are. And this is what makes these gatherings so important and so life-giving after a world that submerges you in sin and brokenness. I'm reading a book right now that talks about the slaves in the early American slave trade and how they thirsted after those moments to gather in secret, to whisper behind wetted down blankets so that their slave owners would not hear them, to whisper the hymns of God, to cry out in the spirituals, to remind each other that the beatings they were taking, that the mastery their white slave owners had over them was not the end of them, that they could stand in the midst and whisper the hymns of God to bring hope to one another. I wonder, do you think of Sunday mornings with that same passion? I can hardly wait to get to that building in the midst of Salem so that we can scream together the goodness of God and the passion that we should have because God has saved us. Is that what you feel when you step out of your bed in the mornings on Sunday? I can hardly wait to get there. I want to get there early to start proclaiming Jesus to the world. I can hardly wait to spread hope among my brothers and sisters. Is that how you feel on Saturday night as you're preparing your heart for Sunday morning? I wonder if the whippings of the world have not sunk deep enough into our back like they did to the people that were wronged in this country who sang those hymnals. You see, they were wounded and they knew it and so they needed the hope of Jesus. And I wonder if maybe we're a little bit too spoiled where we don't realize how badly we need that hope. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior and King today, I want to call you to acknowledge that today you need him. You need his hope. You need to confess that you have turned your back on him and you desire instead to turn back to him. If you're that person today or one of those people today, our elders are going to be in the back during prayer, during worship, and they would love to talk with you about what it is to cry out to God in hope in need, and in humility. They'd love to pray with you today. Well, secondly, not only does it call us to bring to remembrance, it calls us to repentance. Remember that repentance is not a singular change of action, but a change of worldview and worship. The reason that we know our text today is one self-contained thought is because of the bookends of verses 1 and 2 and verse 10 that say basically the same words, return to the Lord your God and you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your hearts and with all your soul. Here within this text, the great Shema, the return to the great Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength of mind. What is our response to God's goodness, to his faithfulness, his promise that infuses hope? Is it to realign our hearts in a state of repentance to all that he finds true and right and just? Is it to put to death our own views and to take on his view of all that he has given us as truth? How do we do this? We do this at the table of communion every Sunday. We go to the table and we remember his broken body and his given blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we lay down at that moment the idolatry that we have built up over the week. And we can come in humility and submit to his will in our lives. You see, it's not just a mental acknowledgement that we need to be forgiven for the sin we have committed. It is a state of mind and lifestyle that exists in gratitude that we have been forgiven, that we have been chosen, that we have been accepted into his kingdom. Nothing that we have done, only everything that Jesus has done 
And as a response, we are called to be holy, not to halfway it or be apathetic or think, well, I did an okay job this week following him, but to week after week strive to respond to him in the gratitude he deserves. And so there in Acts, when the people heard the gospel news, they took on a spirit that we are called to take on. They cried out to Peter. Look at Acts 2, 37 through 39 up there on the screen. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is directly after what we just read. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Right where you sit. Just know that it's you and Jesus. Raise your hand to acknowledge that you need Jesus as Savior. Is that what Peter did here? I know that stings to a lot of people who sat in a lot of churches. And it even stings to me who used to do that all the time. And then I read this and I went, what is the proper response to the gospel? It is to repent and to be baptized. For some reason, somewhere along the line, we replace baptism with raising a hand or saying a prayer. Repent and be baptized. You see, it's not just the mental ascent. It's to state clearly that we are sinners in need of a Savior and we need to repent every day. Isn't it interesting that back in that preaching of Peter we discussed earlier, the people were convicted, they'd recalled God's promises and their need for covenant faithfulness, and it says they were cut to the heart and asked Peter what they must do. Look at his response there. It says, repent and be baptized. And then he says, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You don't need a second work of the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing. Every person who repents and is baptized is given the Holy Spirit. And then we walk in that obedience. We respond to it in obedience. He reminds them that they can be included in the promise of Deuteronomy 30 and every other promise in the Bible, but there must be repentance and inclusion into the new covenant community of Christ. You can't be a lone wolf Christian off wandering around. Where do I get that last part? Well, this is what baptism is, guys. Look at what Colossians 2 says that baptism is. It says, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Question and answer time. When you were a small Jewish child and you were circumcised, what did that mean to you? You were brought into what? The covenant community of Israel. Which means when you are baptized as a Christian, you get to walk your way independent as a lone wolf Christian. No, it means you are baptized into what? The covenant community of Christ. And this is the circumcision that he promised, that we would be brought in by the Spirit and there would be work within us individually and there would be work collectively as a community in us. Just as circumcision was an outward sign of the inward statement that one was part of the covenant people of God, baptism is an outward sign of the inward statement that one is a part of the new covenant people of God. If you've not been baptized but you desire to be, please let us know. So we can glory in that inward inclusion into the church with you. If you're a Christian and you say, I, I don't know I, I, you know, I raised my hand when I was a kid at that camp back when I was eight. Well, that's awesome, okay? You probably did begin your walk with Christ then. Don't let anybody take that away from you. But man, if you haven't been baptized, obey your Lord. Repent, be baptized. 
into the people of Christ. We would love to do that with you. If you want to be baptized, please come talk to me or the folks at the info table. When this occurs, this conviction, this repentance, this inclusion into the people of God through baptism, which has occurred in the lives of most of you in this room, we then enter into this space where we learn obedience and bring about the obedience of faith within our lives. Notice that Moses is saying that repentance and recommitment to the terms of the covenant would result in restoration. When Christ came and sat at the table with his disciples in that upper room, he said that being one with him would result in being part of the covenant people of God. That by his death and resurrection, by his sacrifice, his work of grace, we would be restored as his covenant people and walk forward in a life of sanctification, learning what it is to obey with all our heart and with all our soul. And what does this do? Well, this hope in God's faithful promise of forgiveness and restoration does a few things. First, you can write this down. First, it purifies us. First, it purifies us. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to read you a section here from 1 John. This is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's. We are God's children. And what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. I used to be part of a tradition where all we would do is sit around and talk about when Jesus was coming back. We were so focused on that that we didn't focus on the fact that there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of purification to happen. There's a lot of sanctification to occur. And John even notes this next in verse 4 of 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either sin, seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God." By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, it's not that we will never sin again. It's that when we sin, we don't make a practice of it. We let the conviction of the brothers and conviction of the word turn us back to Christ. It's this hope of Jesus and the hope of his forgiveness and his restoration that cleanses us. Dear brothers and sisters, what in your life are you relying upon to give you hope and happiness that needs to be cast aside? You have all the promises of Christ to hold on to. You have the body of Christ to support you. What else do you need? What do you need to cast aside today that you're holding on to to give you happiness, identity, worth? The hope of Jesus cleanses us. Secondly, we're told that it causes us to show hope in our interaction with one another. That last verse there of verse 11 in, in 1 John 3 says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, uh, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
Our hope and knowledge that we will be with Christ and his people for eternity will quickly result in our love for one another and our unction to respond to conflict and reconciliation. I wonder what God thinks of these puny arguments we hold on to that cause division in the body. Guys, you know how when you're like not getting along with somebody and you go to a party and you're like, boy, this is going to be super awkward, okay? Just imagine if that party lasted for eternity and Jesus was sitting in the chair next to you the entire time. And yet we allow puny arguments in the church to cause division and hold on to enmity. The hope of heaven should cause us to submit all our grievances to the cross so that confession and repentance and forgiveness can result in restoration. This last week, I had kind of uh, wronged somebody in the way that I'd acted towards them, and I had to make sure before I even got up here on stage that I needed to talk to that person to make sure it was okay because there's no way I should be preaching to you if I don't go and deal with that. You see, the reality is, is we should deal with things quickly so that the love of the brethren is over everything we do. And so it purifies us. It gives us a love for the body and it unifies us. And lastly, this sense of hope that leads us in holiness and leads us in reconciliation and love of one another, it identifies us as God's people. It identifies us as God's people. The Word tells us that we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. But see, innate within that statement is people have to know that you're hopeful. I wonder if we are known as a hopeful people. I wonder if people see us and they think, oh man, that's just another beat down person, beat down by their job, beat down by their family. I'm convicted by that constantly. On every psychological assessment I've ever taken, I am depressed. I am, uh, what's the other word? Um, Melancholy. And I wonder if that overcomes the hope I have in Jesus often? Or do people see a hope of heaven, a hope of Christ in me? You see, all these things put together, I know I've taken you through a ton of scripture. I maybe have overloaded you today on scripture, but these breadcrumbs that are throughout the word that show us the hope we have and what it does for us, man, if you put it all together, it sounds like what Paul wrote in the last place I'll turn you, which is Colossians 3. Actually, go there with me. Colossians 3. No one will ever be able to visit mission and walk away with anything other than thinking, man, they love the Word of God. We went through about 300 verses. Colossians 3. This is the section that Cassie wrote, or read to us this morning. Hopefully she didn't write it or else we'd be calling her Paul. She read it to us. In verse 1, it says this. Paul puts all this together, and I could have probably just read this and saved you guys the last hour. But hopefully it makes more sense now. Colossians 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, raise your hand if you've been raised with Christ. If you're a Christian, you should be raising your hand. I hate raising my hand when pastors ask me to. Just do it. Are you a Christian, and have you been raised with Christ? There we go. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Oh, that's good news, isn't it? Because I'm glad that Hans has died. And every time I have to re-kill him, it actually feels really good so that Jesus can reign. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's another one of those promises, those promises that bring hope. 
Put to death, therefore, verse 5, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, 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 everything. Got it? Everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See how Paul pulls it all together? You have this hope, church. So it should translate into holiness and brotherly love and a reflection of him. Guys, we can't evangelize unless we are reflecting him. And if we reflect him, the Bible assures us that people will say, what is wrong with you? And you'll say, I follow a king that is amazing. Can I introduce you to him? We have this hope. And so it should translate into these things. Dear church, I am convicted today. I read this text and I follow this line of thinking and I wonder, would quote unquote hope in Christ be a characteristic that those around me would identify with me? I go through peaks and valleys in my own life, but I think many would say, yeah, Hans, he strives to kill the flesh. I've seen him try and do it. He strives to put on Christ. I think some might even say that they know I love the brethren. Yeah, Hans, he lays his life down for the brethren. But I wonder if anyone would say, Hans, yeah, he has a hope in Christ that's contagious. I'm convicted by that this morning. Would you pray for one another? Would you pray for me as you go to the table of communion? Would you pray for us as a body? And would you ask God to renew his hope within us, renew his hope within you, so that we might be a people who have hope that is given by God's sovereign grace and forgiveness? I pray today that we might realize and accept today the hope given by God's forgiveness clause. This book would be a lot shorter if it weren't in here. God's forgiveness clause gives us a hope that is everlasting and that overcomes anything that we go against. And so I pray today that you would know the hope of God's forgiveness. Let's pray.